What does value mean in fantasy baseball? We'll ask Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swung on, high fly ball to left center should do it. There's Foster, and the 1976 World's Championship belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. In the ninth inning, the Yankees are out in order as the Reds in this fourth game in sweeping. Billy Martin's New York Yankees do it decisively, four in the ninth inning, and a 7-2 final score. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March 13th. It's show number eight of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. In just a few minutes, we'll be talking with Todd Zola about the meaning of value in our game, including true value, inflated value, and market value. And we're going to ask Todd about the labor AL and NL-only auctions that took place earlier this week. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talks about the Tout Wars Mixed Draft. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's Friday the 13th. Everybody under your beds. But we're still going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday News and Notes edition, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson standing by on deck with players from the American League. And to lead us off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. We like to talk about uh, the Buyer's Guide columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, Stephen Nickran covers both batters and starting pitchers in the Buyer's Guides, and Doug Dennis covers the bullpen Buyer's Guide. And this week, in all three Buyer's Guides, they're looking at gambles, which is players who represent maybe some opportunity and maybe somebody, a lot of players in those lists that you're going to be interested in, but they also present a fair amount of risk. Part of what we need to think about with a gamble is is it's a, a player who not only, as you say, presents a fair amount of risk, but is likely to go for, for a decent dollar at, at auction. So going to cost some money, and the risk may be higher than the dollar value warrants. In the Batting Buyer's Guide this week, Stephen looks at, uh, this is a name that seems like a gamble every year, and, and the last couple of years, it has been a gamble that's paid off. Marlon Byrd, the outfielder, is now in Cincinnati. I mean, man, has he paid off well. The last two seasons, we've had Marlon Byrd suddenly becoming a home run giant, 24 home runs in 2013, 25 home runs in 2014, and RBIs, 88 and 85, getting up there to match the home run totals. And so, you know, here's a guy that you look at and go, well, you know, could he continue this sort of thing? And and probably you're going to pay for those last two years' worth of home runs when you get started to pay at auction. This is a $20, $20 ball player, and there's no reason for him to go uh, less than that if people are looking at, at what happened. But Stephen Nickran says there, there are lots of reasons not to go that high, especially if you look at last year's second half. And you look at Marlon Byrd's second half line last year, and it doesn't look too bad. 10 homers, 37 RBIs, yeah, that looks pretty good. The problem is the underlying skills are simply not there. His slugging percentage in, uh, in last season in the second half, 399. 
Now, you know, 399 slugging percentage with 10 home runs. What that tells me, without even looking at other numbers, is there were some balls clearing the fence, but there weren't a lot dropping in for doubles and other sorts of things. So probably extra base hit total is down, although I didn't check it. But other kinds of things, hard contact index dropped from 115 in the first half to 99 in the second half. Uh, ground balls are up from 35 to 39. Fly balls down from 44 to 36. A power index down from 173 to 109. And listen to this. BPV in the second half. Player value in the second half. 58 in the first half, minus 14 in the second half. <laughs> this is not a guy I want to be spending 20 bucks on at auction. On the other hand, there are some factors, Nick, that seem to be pulling in his favor. Moving to Cincinnati can't hurt his power game. You mentioned that maybe a few balls were sneaking over fences. There's lots of balls sneaking over fences in Cincinnati. Well, that's sure true. The uh, BaseballHQ.com forecast for Marlon Bird is pretty optimistic. They suspect he's going to have full-time at-bats, uh, which makes sense, 20 home runs, around 70 runs in RBIs, and a two seventy three batting average, and we can't uh, overlook the importance of that in a two fifty two fifty five batting average environment. That's a big plus for a fantasy roster. The Baseball HQ forecast says $17 or so. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. As I said, Stephen is also covering starting pitchers in the Buyer's Guide and uh, a gamble he looked at in the National League, Atlanta left-hander Mike Miner. Uh, yeah, Mike Miner. Let me, you know, let me throw out something if you start talking about, about starting pitchers. Uh, this, is, this is Ron Chandler's week to write his, uh, to write his uh, draft radar alert on pitching. Right. And um, he makes a point, which I think is a really, really good one at this point. In, in, you know, you're, you're grabbing for pitching. You want that staff that looks good. But we've seen a couple of guys, big names go down already. With, uh, with Tommy John surgery, as Ron says, there are lots of pitchers out there. And I think I agree with him. Unless you're reaching for somebody at the very, very top, I don't think I want to reach for starting pitching. So now Mike Miner. Um, Mike Miner's a guy that, that people may be paying for in hopes of a real kind of bounce back sort of season after, after some injury uh, problems last year and a, and a kind of a struggle to a 4.77 ERA after 3.21 the previous season, but Steven says there are reasons to be real cautious with Mike Miner. Uh, certainly he's going to be a, a nice buy low target, uh, but that may, even the fact that he's, he's a, a, um, a popular buy low target may be driving the price up a bit. And he's already going to start the season on the DL because of his shoulder injury. So he's not likely to begin the season in the rotation. Uh, that's always a question mark for me at this point in the season. Can we assume that he's really going to be ready in the, the time that they say he will uh, and a lot of things uh, sort of tanked in the second half. His his BPV went down. His first pitch strike rate went down. Uh, his September was absolutely awful. In September, 4.3 DOM, 3.8 control, 43% ground ball rate, minus 5 BPV. Uh, certainly there were some, uh, some injury problems related to that. But, you know, you want to make sure the guy's healthy before you spend any kind of significant bucks on him. But, uh, Nick, it's, it seems like if, if we make the assumption that when he comes back to play, you mentioned he's on the DL, he seems to have sidestepped a potential very serious injury. He went to visit Dr. Andrews, uh, which is never good news when you hear that, and it turns out he, they said there's nothing structurally wrong. Mike Miner's going to start the season on the DL. Let's suppose he comes back and he has a clean bill of health. Don't we have to discount that poor second-half performance, especially September last year, on the assumption that... Um, that shoulder injury started sometime in there and was the cause of all those bad numbers getting piled up in uh, July, August, and especially in September? 
Yeah, I think we do have to discount that based on, you know, there's certainly some injury kinds of problems there. But the other thing that I think we've got to be very cautious of is remember there are potentially another dozen Mike Miners out there who may be less risky because they don't have the shoulder problems, may not have the shoulder problem reoccur during the season, et cetera. And XERA in the first half was 3.73. That's okay uh, in today's pitching environment. A 3.73 XERA is fine. Uh, but you can do just as well probably on the waiver wire with another dozen guys. I think that's the key point is that as much as you might like Mike Miner as a as a bounce back candidate, there are plenty of fish in the sea at that le- at that kind of pitching level. And you may look at 2013 and go, oh, you know, 200 plus innings, 180 strikeouts, a really good uh, ERA under 325. His whip was barely over one. He just had a fantastic year. He's worth almost 20 bucks. And you think to yourself, that's what I want to recapture. And um, I had a research piece at BaseballHQ.com a couple of weeks ago that suggested pretty strongly that doesn't happen. Bounce back especially for pitchers, bounce backs don't happen as much as we like to think or like to remind ourselves that they do. You know, you see one pitcher who has a bounce back season and you think that applies to all of them when in fact it's definitely in the minority. Right, very, very definitely in the minority. Well, BaseballHQ.com is pessimistic about Mike Miner for 2015, essentially a zero value with an ERA around four, a whip around 130. This is not a roster candidate in mixed leagues, maybe reserve in an NL only if you have a long reserve list and you can afford to bide your time. Uh, Nick, Stephen Nickrand also looked at Cubs returnee, the right-hander Jason Hamill is back in Chicago. Yeah, Jason Hamill had a, had a really incredible first half last season and Looked very, very good before he got traded to Oakland. 2.98 ERA in the first half, 122 BPV. Outstanding season. And then fell apart in the second half. Uh, ERA went up to 4.15, BPV of 75 in the second half. Uh, all kinds of other things went wrong. His skills were just kind of league average in the second half. 7.5 DOM, a 2.8 control. A ground ball rate dropped to 39%. A swinging strike rate dropped. First pitch strike rate dipped, uh, all kinds of problems in the second half. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people are saying, all right, now he's out of the American League, he's back in Chicago, this is a guy that you uh, would be willing to pay some bucks for. Um, maybe. But again, you remember, got to remember that first half was a little bit of a surprise last year. Uh, I think I would, again, given the number of candidates out there, be very, very cautious about, uh, about Jason Hamill. And I love Jason Hamill last year. I had him on my team. But he's been a very inconsistent pitcher over the last three or four seasons, and you just don't know what you're going to get. So uh, I think at this point, when there are other candidates available, I wouldn't be paying very much money for him. Well, you said the word inconsistent. Uh, in 2011, he was a minus $7 pitcher in 5x5. Five five. The next year, plus 7 The next year after that, minus 9 Then last year, plus 11 So he's, he bounces back and forth, and the the size of the swings or the amplitude of the swings seems to be growing. And if even if you believe in that kind of uh, on your off your kind of thing, which I really don't, if you expect that it's true, he's due for a big minus year this year on that pattern. So uh, we're projecting Hamill at BaseballHQ.com to be around a replacement level uh, pitcher. As you say, one of those kind of guys you can find almost anywhere in the waiver wire or the free agent pool. He's probably not going to find his way onto many mixed league rosters with a 4 ERA and a 130 whip projected. I don't think there are many uh, projection engines out there on the internet that show Jason Hamill as being that much better than that. So eh, probably a gamble not worth taking. And finally, uh, Nick, in his bullpen buyer's guide, Doug Dennis looked at LaTroy Hawkins. And as of right now, he's the closer in Colorado. But Doug says he's limping into the season with a very low dom rate under 6.0 strikeouts per nine. 
you know, and that we, that, this is one of those one of those uh, one of those interesting things where last year we said the same thing starting the season with Troy Hawkins. He can't possibly hang out of the role, and of course he proved us all wrong by going out there and uh, and converting twenty three saves and winding uh, up with a three point three one ERA and, a, and an overall decent uh, dollar value season. Although skills wise, uh, thing not so much. And you know, I we've got a guy now who's forty two years old. Uh, his dom rate is way down. He's pitching in Colorado. Uh, high Dom certainly helps in Colorado. Uh, ground ball rate is not nearly what it was. A couple of seasons ago, a 57% ground ball rate. That's down to 47%. Uh, so I think the risk on Latroy Hawkins has, has amped up considerably with the extra year of age. Uh, so he would not be a guy I would be wanting on, on my in my bullpen. Uh, I think, again, I'd be looking elsewhere, and I think he's a big gamble at anything uh, uh, over $5. The interesting thing to me in the historical record of Latroy Hawkins, Nick, is uh, the transition from 2010 to 2011 when he went from being a very high strikeout guy uh, and a very high uh, a low ground ball guy to exactly the reverse. You know, he had a 10.1 strikeout rate, but only 47% ground balls in 2010. And then the very next year, he bumps his ground ball rate up by 15 points to that 62 that you mentioned. But at the same time, his dominance rate collapses by half, all the way down to just uh, just over five strikeouts per nine. And that's kind of been the model he's tried to use ever since. But now the problem is the strikeouts are remaining very, very low, barely around that five level. But the uh, ground ball rate now is starting to collapse and line drives in, are increasing. So uh, it's altogether not that great a situation for Latroy Hawkins. No, not at all. You know, as you pointed out, that 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 there was that certainly that ramp up in 2011 where he seemed to seemed to change the way he was pitching to generate a lot more ground balls and. And as you mentioned, now the ground ball rate is back to what it was in 2010, but the dom rate is half of what it was in 2010. Right. So uh, I think uh, that that all kinds of red flags waving out there. Well, as for now, uh, BaseballHQ.com is projecting Hawkins for another 25 saves, 389 uh, ERA, 125 whip. Not stellar numbers, but worth you know eight or nine bucks in a mixed league kind of format. I don't know that I want to gamble on it. And we've talked about some of the uh, alternatives, uh, especially Adam Ottavino. Yeah, very definitely. Adam Ottavino is a guy that I would gamble on, I think, a bit at this point in time because uh, I, f I think he'll find himself in the closer role sooner rather than later. And even behind Ottavino, if you have the kind of deep reserve that allows you to stash guys away, keep in mind a young man named Jairo Diaz. We've talked about him in the past as well, Nick. He's just a strikeout monster in the minor leagues and could have a chance at saves sometime down the road. At least uh, that's what Doug Dennis seems to think. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk to you again next week. Very good. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and of course he's our man on the National League beat here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Now let's look at the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show after your Mexican vacation. Yeah, hey, PD, nice nice to be back uh, for the show anyway. Uh, I really enjoyed Mexico, so I'm not sure it's nice to be back from there. Well, no doubt. Uh, did you find any nice tequilas? Um, I actually did. Um, it's a it's a big tequila making uh, state that we were in. We were in Puerto Vallarta, and uh, they made a lot of artisanal stuff that I don't get here in California. And I did a little tasting down there, as you might imagine. Uh, it was a whole bunch of fun. Well, that's what they call it sometimes—a little tasting. Absolutely. <laughs> well, a uh, taste of bad news for Texas and fantasy owners with the new Darvish situation. It's obviously not good news for anybody. Rod Truesdell wrote about Darvish, uh, his injury, the Rangers' situation in playing time today this week. So what is the take 
on uh, Rod Trusdell's look and your own look at you Darvish's situation and especially what happens in the Rangers rotation. Yeah, well, everybody knows by now that Darvish is out for the for the rest of the year, and the Rangers just don't have a lot of good solutions. They don't have a lot of pitching depth. Um, uh, Derek Derek Holland has shoulder woes again this spring. Um, Colby Lewis is 35. He he still has pretty good command, but the home runs and fly balls are really becoming a problem. Ross Detweiler's kind of a a fifth starter at best. Um, they really got to hope that. Uh, Somebody like Matt Harrison, who's been out for two seasons with back surgery, or Martin Perez with Tommy John, can return quickly or better than expected. But frankly, none of these rotation possibilities jump out at me, given all their questions and limited upside. The one name that Rod Truesdale mentioned in his PT Today piece that we both like, at least in keeper leagues over the long haul, is Alex Chichi Gonzalez, who is a, a, a rookie with some college background, pretty decent stuff. But even he has uh, no MLB experience and just 73 innings pitched at double a he's the most polished of the ranger kids and could be in arlington before he's ready and, and you got jake thompson who's the rangers best pitching prospect but he even has less double a time than gonzalez and will probably head back there to begin the season yeah i, I really am very reticent to take a guy uh, who's coming from double a with no experience because uh, the Throw, being thrown to the wolves at an early age to suit the team's roster requirements is never a really positive thing for a, for a young pitcher. I'd be very concerned if I had any of those young prospects, especially as a keeper in a long-term league. I hope they don't do that, but boy, they're not facing a lot of uh, alternatives. Uh, how much do you think Derek Holland can help? You mentioned he's already got shoulder trouble and he's had injury pro- trouble in the past. Well, and that's the issue with Derek Holland. I mean, if you saw his finish last year, he did very well. I think he picked up uh, five uh, PQS doms in six starts. Uh, but uh, he's got sh- he has shoulder discomfort. He's had it all spring, and the word I'm hearing now is that he may not be ready for opening day. And I know Texas picked up Giovanni Gallardo over uh, uh, during the off season, and he had a decent 2014 season. But Gallardo is a, is a league average right-handed pitcher right now and and he's in a high scoring ballpark that's particularly friendly to left-handed batters I, 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 with the pen and the offense having a lot of questions I, I just think it's going to be a long year in Texas again they have an awful lot of minor league prospects that will get a lot of people salivating and if they believe they have a chance at competing in the American League West do you think there's any chance that they might trade even a Joey Gallo or something like that to get a frontline starter and try to improve that rotation in some way or is this the kind of news with Darvish going out and especially with Holland also now uh, struggling with injury, do you think there's a chance that Texas just throws in the towel? You know, um, I actually, with regard to Gallo, I actually take the the other tack. If um, if uh, the Rangers are, are down and out again, I, if 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 they can get good starting pitching prospects for Adrian Beltre, that's the move they may make because I'm pretty sure right now that Adrian Beltre is not going to be a member of the next uh, Texas champion, divisional championship, and Gallo might be, um, but they seriously need a pitching infusion right now. I've seen the idea that they ought to be thinking about trading uh, uh, Beltre, as you suggested, and it does seem to make a lot of sense, especially if they're not going to be competitive otherwise. It's kind of a shame because, you know, if... Uh, Prince Fielder is back and 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 ready to go and, and maybe returns even 90% of the way to his past form. All of a sudden, you know, Texas had a right to think, hey, maybe we're, we've got this ship uh, back uh, upright in the water, and uh, now it looks like they're taking on more water. They hit one iceberg after another. 
Yeah, and Beltre has been really good for Texas. Obviously, he's he's over the past uh, year, or last year anyway, he was he was the only good thing in Texas almost. Um, um, he's been a tremendous player, and this is why I'm thinking, you know, he he could yield some return from a from a divisional contender sometime this year, who who needs third base help. And lots of teams do, and of course, Beltre a plus plus defender, which adds to his value, especially to a team that's struggling to find its way to the top of a division, which it looks like Texas won't be. Uh, Jock, some really tough news for the Toronto Blue Jays and Marcus Stroman owners in fantasy baseball. Stroman tore his ACL during a fielding drill, and he's going to miss the entire year. Yeah, that was a killer. Uh, losing Stroman is a huge blow for Toronto and his fantasy owners. Toronto has a lot of debt, plenty of talent, but Stroman was the guy who everyone looked at was going to be on the cusp of a breakout year, and, and a lot of fantasy owners were, li- were li- relying on him. Yeah, there's uh, in my American League Home League the other day, the, f- the guy in my league who owned Marcus Stroman was very excited about it. Now he's, uh, he's actually thinking about going for a rebuilding season because that's how big a blow it was. It's pretty, it's pretty bad for Stroman owners and for the team. Matt Dodge at BaseballHQ.com wrote about this whole situation in Playing Time today, and he says there are three pitchers, uh, Marco Estrada who came over via trade in the Adam Lind deal, Daniel Norris, and Aaron Sanchez. These three guys had been basically chasing one rotation slot now they're competing for two rotation slots so what's the outlook here well as matt notes this leaves a lot of moving parts in toronto um, and and much depends on the spring training performances to begin with but toronto could be a a a a work in progress pitching wise all season long they have depth so let's begin with estrada he's always had the strikeouts but his fly ball has always produced home run bursts when he's just a touch off and kept him at the back end of rotations at best He's always been a fantasy favorite due to his ability to paint, but his ERA has always been around four in the National League. It was last year, I think it was 4.36. He pitched half his games in Milwaukee's big home run park, but honestly, I don't see this getting much better in Toronto in the AL East. Yeah, flyball pitchers in the American League East, and particularly at Rogers Center, a very touchy combination that a lot of uh, fantasy owners need to be aware of. Uh, We've seen a lot of stories about Daniel Norris in the media lately, but they seem to focus mostly on his lifestyle. Uh, This reputation he has as kind of a modern hippie, lives in his van, you know, uh, communes with nature and all that sort of stuff, which is all very cute and, and nice for him. But what about his pitching? Well, he's always been found in the top 20 to, to 40 pitch uh, prospects in baseball over the last year or two. So his, his long-term upside's terrific, but he only has 68 innings pitched above uh, high A. So I, I'm pretty sure Toronto was hoping that he could spend at least the beginning of 2016 honing his craft either in AA or, or AAA, and that still might happen. Uh, he's, he's got an 11.5 dom in, in his uh, 257 total minor league innings, but control has always been an issue in that poor control, inexperience combo has always been a toxic mix at the major league level. It, it, it is indeed. And then you have Aaron Sanchez, you mentioned. It might be the most interesting because uh, he had a really good year last year in the bullpen, and he's been touted since then as a successor to the departed closer, Casey Jansen. Yeah, Sanchez is interesting, not just for his, his pedigree, which is very similar to um, Norris's, but because like Norris, he struggled with control throughout his minor league career. And then when Toronto put him in the bullpen to begin his major league career, he actually looked dominant, and he and he was and he managed to rein in the walk so much so that uh, a lot of people have been talking about him um, starting his career as a, as a reliever or even as a closer. 
And that's what a lot of people thought until the start of spring training or just before it when the uh, management of the club said, in no uncertain terms, they wanted Aaron Sanchez to be in the rotation. Now, does the Stroman injury, do you think, make it likelier that Sanchez is not going to be the closer and by inference that Brett Cecil will be getting the saves? Yeah, well, you talk about your moving parts. Yeah, if Sanchez sticks in the rotation, you've got Brett Cecil and Aaron, Aaron Lupo are the best pure options on the current staff. And while both are very capable per, per their BPIs, neither is really ideal due to their less-than-eye-popping stuff and handedness. Uh, Cecil, in particular, is a lefty who posted almost uh, 13 strikeouts per nine innings last year. But he also has a five walk per nine inning uh, to go along with a really good ground ball per, uh, rate and, and a 2.7 ERA. He's also had rotor, rotator cuff inflammation all spring, so there seems to be some risk here. And uh, Loop has also showed some pretty good stuff over the last couple of seasons in, in Toronto, but very inconsistent as well. So what are the chances that maybe the Toronto closer role gets split somehow during the season? Either they move responsibilities around or go to a straight full-time committee. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm seeing from here uh, as well. Um, this is definitely one possible outcome. Make a long story short, if I had to draft today, I wouldn't really be placing any significant bets on any Blue Jay getting 30 saves. I agree with you entirely. I think it's just too dangerous to try to pick that now. Unless, of course, we're starting to hear rumors here in the area that the Jays are interested in maybe looking at a trade for um, uh, Jonathan Papelbon as Philadelphia continues to implode their team and build for the future. Maybe even some people are saying a Cole Hamels and Papelbon coming north to solidify the rotation and the bullpen, although heaven knows what it would cost them in prospects. Uh, I think Sanchez maybe could be a more interesting speculative bid because of all this. The uncertainty seems to support him as a sort of win-win proposition jock. Either he makes the rotation, where he could be a pretty pleasant surprise given his stuff, uh, if he can somehow stretch out what he was doing in the bullpen last year, very high strikeout rate, a lot of ground balls, if he could move that up as a starting pitcher and do it for 180 innings, he could be a real pleasant surprise as a starter. Or maybe he ends up the closer and you get you get your 30 saves, and either way you get him on the cheap. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, of course he could end up in a setup role and, and not be worth a bit at all, but his 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 future is so bright and he, he again he reined in the walks uh, out of the pen last year and he's a right hander as opposed to the other guys um, I agree I think he's worth a, a, a definitely worth a speculative bid the question is you got to be very careful about how you calibrate a speculative bid versus the kind of bid that will uh, get get to the point where the reward is not as uh, enough to compensate for the risk so you have to be real careful about that uh, I think we both agree though in the long term with the club that he'd probably be more valuable valuable to the Blue Jays in a starting role. So the question is, is he ready for it now? And if he isn't, do we see any other candidates in camp besides Norris and Estrada? Well, you've got uh, control specialist Liam Hendricks, who, who is kind of a long shot. His his career ERA at the uh, major league level is near six in, in uh, almost 200 innings. He doesn't get enough strikeouts or ground balls. He, uh, he He's probably better than this. It's it's kind of hard to be worse and stay in the league, but, but, he, but you're right. He's a long shot. Gavin Floyd refractured his throwing elbow, ouch, by the way, and he's going to be out for what the club calls the foreseeable future, which means probably the entire season, if not most of it. Tom Kephart looked at the injury situation in playing time today. What does this Gavin Floyd injury mean to Cleveland? It pretty much ensures that uh, both TJ House and Danny Salazar are going to get every chance to make the rotation instead of just fighting for that last spot. On the strength of that final kick down the 2014 stretch alone, 
House looks like the better play numbers wise, um, but he has a ton to prove. Um, he, he'd never done anything like that, uh, even in his minor league career. Um, before what he did in Cleveland. Salazar actually has the best upside. He has uh, the stuff of a number one, number two starter, but he's also a fly ball pitcher who's prone to gopheritis and unraveling when things don't go his way. And he's been hit hard now in two starts, which uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Cleveland does the rest of this spring. I don't mind Salazar as a speculative bidding target, again, because he's had some rough starts in the spring. If that continues, that'll be something that'll depress his price. And of course, he was such a highly touted guy last year. Everybody's sleeper list had Danny Salazar on it, and a lot of owners spent a lot of money acquiring Danny Salazar or spent to fairly high draft picks, and um, he disappointed everybody, let's be honest. Yeah, he did. Uh, he got in trouble with the home run early. He was sent down to the minors, but he came back. He righted the ship and did very well. He still occasionally, even in that in, even in that second half kick, um, ha- had a couple of blowups that were home run related. So he's he's he really has to control those fly ball tendencies. Anybody else uh, in the running? Yeah, uh, you've got Josh Tomlin and Zach McAllister, McAllister, both of whom have had rotation shots in the past and have lost them because of their inconsistently. Um, both have some interesting metrics. They're, they're, they're good uh, back-end to low upside sleepers with the right opportunity. So it's something to be wa- to watch. They're just not going to help you. They're not going to probably give you double-digit earnings from a, from a fantasy perspective. I've seen some touts so far this year mentioning McAllister favorably, and he's certainly going to come cheap after last year. Uh, down in Tampa, more pitching injuries already this uh, spring training, and Matt Dodge covered this in playing time today. So what's going on in Tampa? Drew Smiley has shoulder tendonitis, and he has yet to make his spring debut. Uh, manager Kevin Cash doesn't know when Smiley's going to throw again, and this kind of makes him officially questionable now for opening day. You've got Alex Colomay as the most experienced of the uh, bottom of the rotation guys who could benefit because of this. And he actually has a career sub-3 ERA in the majors in eight games and six starts, but his BPI suggests he can't keep this up. He walks too many and he doesn't strike out enough. The most interesting name might be Nate Carnes, who has just 24 major league innings under his belt and has been tattooed by the home run ball. But scouts like his potential. Um, um, he, he Got hit hard in AAA last year, but he struck out over a batter and inning. This guy may be someone to watch this spring. Nate Carnes, K-A-R-N-S. Uh, keep an eye on him. And finally, moving back to bullpens uh, in Minnesota, the Twins closer Glenn Perkins has an undiagnosed side injury that they're calling right now a mild oblique strain. Uh, Mike Shears talked about it in playing time today, and Bob Berger talked about it in playing time tomorrow. So who do they like behind Glenn Perkins if we assume he's not going to be ready to go? Well, Casey Fien is the most obvious choice, despite a not-closer-worthy 3.98 ERA and 3.99 expected ERA combo last year. His biggest strength is a sub-2 control that fuels a very good command rate, but his Ks have been all over the place. He struck out 7.2 hitters in nine innings last year. The Minnesota pen isn't exactly a strength right now. And the interesting thing about Bob Berger's PT tomorrow piece is that he reminds us that Perkins was shut down last September with elbow irritation. So you got to wonder if he's going to have injury issues this year. Thanks very much for talking with us again this week. Uh, welcome back to the uh, land of fantasy baseball and podcasting, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thanks, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. He writes regularly for the site, and of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular talk with Todd is coming up after the break. Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. 
inviting you to go back to the future with us. 2015 is the 30th anniversary of the original Back to the Future movie, and this year is also the future destination that Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd travel to in that movie. Back to the Future is the theme of our 2015 First Pitch Forums program. No, we won't have a DeLorean at the events, but we will do some time traveling into the future ourselves as we preview the 2015 baseball season. Join us for these entertaining three-plus-hour seminars and jumpstart your draft prep. Admission is just $39 in advance, and you can get the dates and details at BaseballHQ.com. Just look for the First Pitch Forums box on the right side of the homepage. We'll see you there. The First Pitch Forums National Tour wraps up this weekend, Saturday in Los Angeles and Sunday in San Francisco. Here comes Roger Maris. They're standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. As we approach opening day and drafts and auctions across the game, BaseballHQ.com is working overtime to keep you caught up with everything you need to succeed. Like these features, Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column is his annual draft radar alert for pitchers. Brian Rudd's Facts and Flukes Player Performance Validation Column includes Justin Morneau, Nick Markakis, Bartolo Colon, and others. And as we mentioned earlier, all three of the BaseballHQ.com buyer's guides are looking at gambles for 2015. Plus, we have all kinds of other great stuff refreshed every day to get you ready for your drafts. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And once again, it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be back, Patrick. It's always good to have you. Uh, Todd, I know you're a fan of the Baseball HQ forums. I, you post there fairly regularly. and I noticed that your name has changed on there. You're now imported Todd Zola, and I'm wondering, are you just improving your quality over the regular domestic brand? Well, I wanted to come up with a you know, a pseudonym. Maybe people wouldn't recognize me so I could <laughs> you know, post mean things and, and, and spam people, but apparently I should have chosen another name. One of the discussions that you're taking part in on the Baseball HQ forums, Todd, was a discussion about inflation. There's, there are people who wonder about how it works and how they should respond and so forth. And near the end of the thread, as it now exists, uh, one of the posters said, there's no such thing as true value or true inflation. Does that sound right to you? Um, I think it sounds partially right, and I, I, I suppose it depends upon your definition of value. I think we, as we've talked before, I don't think you can pinpoint value to two decimal places, but you can ballpark it. So I think in a keeper league with inflation, what you're doing is you're you're inflating a ballparked price. I think you can say it's higher, but just like with a regular value, I don't think you can put you know a, a concrete you know in my keeper league, Miguel Cabrera is worth fifty four dollars because of inflation. 
I think you can say, in order to get them in my keeper league, I'm going to need to pay in the neighborhood of $54. There's No, there's a subtle but definite difference. You know, I'll take issue with that to the extent that I think that there is such a thing as true value in this sense. You have a valuation system. You have your own valuation system. Other sites have their valuation systems. And within the context of that system, the value is true. You take a certain amount of projections, and of course, there's the element of the of the uh, inconsistency or inaccuracy of the projections themselves, the homers and uh, innings pitched and so forth. But assuming that the projections are accurate, the valuation is true at least in the context of that uh, of that system. Yeah, that's correct. And then you you know you add in, well, I don't know where my home runs are going to be within my actual league, so. Do I win by one or do I win by 20? And therefore, you know, the value is wrong. You know, on paper at the beginning of the season, all we have is the projections of the player and of the pool itself. Exactly. And you right, need yeah. to come up with the, as you say, the true value based on that system as it stands there. So that's all we can go by. And then we let the season play out and manage the categories accordingly. But in order to get the most potential on your roster in March and April, yeah, you do need, you know, a true value based upon your projections and however you believe the valuation systems would work. And the the uh, the true value also has some other things that uh, that get reflected in it when you're doing those uh, those systems. Once you accept that you're going to use one of the systems because you have to use something, otherwise you would just be saying Miguel Cabrera three bucks, you know, and just throwing numbers at them randomly, which doesn't make any sense. Right. You need to, you know you need to ballpark it, and I like to say too is. I'm not as concerned about the absolute value as I am. I don't mean, you know, absolute value in the, you know, fourth grade math class type, but absolute being, you know, concrete to the fifth decimal place. I'm more concerned about the relative ranking of players. So I hope my system tells me, you know, Paul Goldschmidt is better than Jose Abreu or something to that effect, as opposed to Goldschmidt's 43 and Abreu's 39 or something like that. And then you meld that within the the dynamics of the auction or the draft itself and and but it does help that you know that it's going to cost about 40 bucks to get Paul Goldschmidt in your league it might not be exactly 40 but to me that's the true the true aspect of it is it's going to be about 40 to get Paul Goldschmidt and I think there's a there's a certain worth of scale as well. You're right about Paul Goldschmidt may not be exactly 43, but he's four dollars better than uh, than Abreu is, which is roughly 10 percent. And similarly, if you go halfway down the list to Adam Lind, or you know two thirds of the way down the list to Adam Lind is a 15 dollar player, then you're, what you're saying is Goldschmidt is roughly three times more valuable as a fantasy asset than is Adam Lind or whoever's in that in that price range. And that helps too. It helps to understand that. You know, if I don't get Paul Goldschmidt and I'm willing to wait all the way down to Adam Lind, I, I have to have a, some kind of scale understanding of what I'm, what I'm giving up and what I'm getting. Right. It's even, I don't like to do the, well, I could get Goldschmidt and I could get, you know, Neil Walker or I could get, you know, Anthony Rendon. I understand he was hurt, so I, let's assume he's okay. Anthony Rendon and, you know, Adam Lind or Adam LaRoche. I don't like to do the, the, the player by player comparison. 
in that nature because there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. But yeah, that it sort of helps again with the relative ranking as far as that goes. Do I pass on the first rounder and pick this other player instead? Because I have a tier first baseman later that's got LaRoche and it's got Leaned and it's got Teixeira and it's got a bunch of other first basemen of similar value that I know I can get later, uh, based upon, you know, the, the, the true ranking of the player, which, you know, again, that's all we got to go by at the beginning. And if we accept the premise that there is such a thing as a true value that's generated by this uh, by this system by this valuation system then there is such a thing as true inflation but people have to understand there's there's a difference between a guy in my league paid more than mike trout was worth versus according to the system the inflated value of mike trout is x because of all the keeper value that's been uh, re- reduced or removed from the pool yeah, it might be semantics, but I think, you know, in a, in a redraft versus keeper league, I think there was a, a little bit of a distinction. The, the, the effect, you know, money wise, how you try to calculate what you might need to pay is, is pretty much the same. But, you know, it could just be semantics as far as he played it, you know, paid an inflated value for, for, for Mike Trout in a redraft league. I think what it is is it's taking a word inflation, which has a very specific meaning in the fantasy circles. And using a more general definition of it, and it might be confusing because it's one of those words that sort of let's dedicate the word inflation to keeper leagues, sort of thing, and we're just kind of borrowing it in a general sense, and it could get confusing. You're right, and and I think the source of the confusion is that what I don't think what we need to do is say let's use inflation in the sense of one league or another. I think the point is let's use the word inflation to describe inflation. Let's not use the word inflation to describe overpaying because people have all kinds of different reasons that they want to overpay for an asset at a draft. And the first one, of course, is they just have a different idea of the player's value than you do. So your your valuation system, Todd, may spit out Mike Trout at $47. The fact that somebody else pays 50 is not an inflation. It's just maybe a reflection of the fact that the way they set their valuation system up, he's worth 50 bucks. Right, and what it may, you know, it's not so much irony, but by someone paying more than what you feel is necessary, what that does, it makes maybe makes the rest of the league prices inflated, because now there's, you know, there's fewer dollars chasing more, or more dollars chasing fewer talent. So Trout himself wasn't inflated, but he, the influence on the rest of the league could mathematically make the league now paying inflated prices. Wouldn't it work the other way if he if if we if he's the first? Let's say it's a redraft league. And oh yeah, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah, before you don't. Have, yes, it's deflation. Right. I'm sorry because there's, there's, yeah, I had it right the first time. Right. By playing by overpaying for Trout, you can then get players at a deflated price. And then the the further argument then starts occurring that uh, something you said earlier that in in the inflated environment Miguel Cabrera is worth fifty four dollars and therefore that's what we need to expect somebody will pay. I agree that that's what they should pay, but of course the uh, the what they will pay for Miguel Cabrera is going to be established by their how much they have money in their wallet, how much they need Miguel Cabrera at that point in the auction to solidify their roster. That's what they think he's worth, or whatever the case might be. Right now, you mentioned the, the the thread in the forum. the the re, The stimulus of that was, you know, as you know, the conventional treatment for inflation is just to linearly apply a factor across all the players. If there's thirty three percent inflation, you just multiply all the 
non-inflated prices by, you know, 1.33, right. increasing by 33% to get to the new price. And I, you know, I'm not bothered by that in that it sort of goes against one of the tenants of valuation in that the worst player at each position, regardless, is still going to go for a dollar. So again, you know, the, the thread was about a different way of calculating inflation where I, Keep the worst player at a dollar. I don't make him a dollar thirty-three. He stays at a dollar, and then I scale up accordingly, just like I do in in regular valuation. And what this does is it forces the money to the top players, just like it does to me. Anyway, this is another part that came up in the the auction. the, The thread was all my keeper leagues. They do pay for the top players. One of the posters was saying, well, in his leagues. They don't, and you know we each. That's that's what we. Those are the leagues we each see. So that's what we believe is the case. But you know neither of us are right. My leagues, it happens. His leagues, it doesn't. So you have to be aware of that as well. And that is if in his league, if inflated price of Cabrera is fifty four, and he only goes for forty six or seven, well that might be a buying opportunity because you know would you rather chase a guy in the middle or or pay. A pretty good price for a guy like Cabrera at the top. So that's, you know, knowing your own leagues as well. And the price is, you know, true inflation. Again, just as regular values have a bit of a error bar associated with them, so do, so do inflated prices. Well, the inflated price is just a function of the of the base price or the normal price, whatever true value price, whatever you want to call that. Uh, you're just going to multiply it by some factor, and it's going to go up or down. And I, I think what you said is interesting about how to apply inflation, because for the longest time, I did what you said. I just applied 33% inflation to the entire batter pool, and in fact, to the entire player pool, including pitchers. And over time, uh, the we've begun begun to realize that there are these further variations. You have to separate hitters from pitchers, for instance, based on how your league generally does that. You're going to have to separate middle tier hitters from top tier hitters from bottom level hitters, because some in some leagues, as you said, there is the 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 impact of inflation is not as pronounced at the top. Whereas in other leagues, like the ones that uh, I play in, it's hugely important at the top, and. The question then becomes, how do you respond to it? And I think one way that you mentioned is to look for an opportunity that if your valuation system plus inflation says Miguel Cabrera is worth 54 and the price is 46, go the extra buck. You're still saving seven. Right. And again, it's, 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 it's how you get that 54 that matters because, I mean, I actually believe that my the, the way of that I talked about doing inflation is you know in theory to me it it is more practical because it's it's what happens the lowest players get a dollar regardless of the league and everything else is scared up scaled up accordingly now the whole scale up you don't know what's going to happen in the interim it's it's at that time you know a certain player is worth a certain amount after each purchase it readjusts depending it upon does, what yep. the actual price was now one purchase may not affect things but two or three you know, may start to skew things a dollar here or there or whatever. But, you know, there's no stop-go number. But what the reason I did it was people were, well, you know, I, I apply my inflation 25% and, and I still don't get the guys at the top because people are paying more. Now, you know, to me it's like, well, just pay more. But some people want a reason to pay more. So I came up, you know, I came up with this little Excel program that makes the number higher. You give a reason why 
it makes sense, and now suddenly they'll pay more, and you've done your job. I think to to get back to the idea of how much is Miguel Cabrera worth, in that environment, if you trust your valuation system, it's 54. Now, if somebody goes over 54 and they go over you know, 59 for Trout, whatever his inflated value is, and they go over 48 for Paul Goldschmidt and so on down the line, this presents kind of an interesting paradox because what they're doing by overpaying is they're reducing inflation in the league. And what and as as inflation goes down, the value of your money goes up. It should buy more talent. And in a in a world of like a a full economy where there's no shortage of anything, that is how it works. You get deflation and prices decline. But the problem in a fantasy auction is your money is getting worth more, but there's less and less to buy with it. And as a result, paradoxically, you end up in the middle tiers competing with one or two other guys who also saved their money, and you end up having to way overpay for the Adam Lins of the world and, and guys like that because everybody realizes at the same time, I've got $240 of my budget left and all the good players are gone. This is especially, what I'm about to say, is especially true in the mixed league to sort of dovetail on what you're saying in that not only, you know, the inflation, it's, it's based on your numbers, your projections. Your player pool is different than mine. So even in a regular redraft league, we're each going to have guys at the end that we only like. Now, add this onto, the, onto inflation. And in a mixed league, you, you really better spend your money earlier on because you're going to get this other effect anyway where I just happen to like – Seth Smith or Matt Joyce or some platoon player more than you because I'm giving him 50 or 75 more at-bats and my little black box gives him two or three more dollars than yours does. So you're going to get sort of organic bargains just based upon how we each feel about the player pool. If we don't get rid of or, or counter the inflated prices earlier, you know we're going to end up leaving money on the table in a mixed league. There's also a difference, and uh, I think it may be semantic as well, between what we talked about already is true value, which is the output of your projection engine and valuation system versus market value. And I think a lot of times when people say, like this poster in the thread, for instance, said there's no such thing as true value, I think what he's getting at is the value of the player is going to be set by the auction in the moment. And I entirely agree with that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the true value of the object outside of that context. Uh, things have true values and they have market values, and sometimes they're different. For instance, you live in the U.S. Northeast. They had a ter terrible snowstorms or a hurricane or not, the storm Sandy a couple of years ago in New York. And all of a sudden, we know that the value of, a, of a four gallons of bottled water is roughly three bucks or whatever it is, but all of a sudden it's selling for 25 and the reason for that is is because all of a sudden people need it for some reason. And to transfer that analogy into, into fantasy baseball, when I started out in my home league many years ago, I found myself paying $40 for Paul Sorrento. And the reason was I had $40, I had an opening at first base, and Paul Sorrento was the last first baseman. So I got into a wicked bidding war and, and he went up to 40 bucks. Was his true value there for 40 bucks? Of course it wasn't. He's still a $15 player even at the time, but I had to bid 40 bucks because at that moment in time, the market said you got to pay the 40 bucks. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a funny Paul Sorrento story in a second, but you know, another example, and in a few hours, I'm going to be at Logan Airport heading out to first pitch forum, and I'm probably going to be paying $3 for a soda that I just bought for 99 cents at 7-Eleven, you know, half an hour ago. It's, you know, the difference between an airport price and a, you know, and a 7-Eleven on a, on a, on a high one, you know, on, in my neighborhood. So, but, you know, real quick about Paul Sorrento, 
Uh, he's near and dear to me. We we may not be speaking if it wasn't for Paul Sorrento, our good friend Jason Gray, who's now a scout with Tampa. I joined a, a local Boston league, and he was the shark, and he liked to pick on the minnows. And he tried to sell me Paul Sorrento. I forget what, what he was asking from me. I have no idea. He wanted Paul Sorrento or wanted to give me Paul Sorrento. I kept refruiting his advances and got a phone call from him and said, Jason, I just I don't want Paul Sorrento. He goes, no, no, I'm not here for Paul Sorrento. I'm starting up a website. And I, just by the way that we talked about the trade and you wouldn't go for it, I want you to be one of my writers. And as they say, the rest is history. And I presume the website was Masters Ball. Yes, the website was Masters Ball. So, Paul Sorrento's contribution to baseball, maybe he won't be in the Hall of Fame, but he's responsible for the start of a Hall of Fame career by a fantasy writer. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, the labor auctions happened last weekend. I know you don't participate in the auctions anymore because they often overlap with first pitch forums, which you really enjoy participating in as well. But uh, I know you keep a close eye on all these expert league auctions. What reactions did you have coming out of labor auctions? Well, yeah, I listened to them on the... uh, I was actually driving home home from the uh, first pitch forum listening on the radio. First thing I noticed was because I like to I like to keep there's certain things that you can sort of take out of them and then certain things that are so auction dependent but to me prices on closers is something that can be transient through different auctions maybe not the exact price but trends and in AL it costs to get a good closer and in the NL you really didn't have to pay for a good closer and if you the reason I think anyway is there are, and I actually talk about this at the first pitch forum tours. There are probably 14 situations that are fairly settled in the National League with the Mets and being the, really the one that's unsettled. I know that, you know, Jansen with LA, but he will be the closer, uh, down the line. So if you want a closer, there are 12 teams chasing, you know, 14 closers. You don't have to go nuts. You're just going to get one. If you're, if you're, you know, philosophy is, I don't care who I get, I just want a guy with a job, the supply is there. The demand does not exceed the supply. Whereas in the American League, if you do the math and you start thinking about all the different situations where there's either, uh, you know, sketchy situations or just playing completely up in the air, then you do need, the the demand is bigger than the supply. And then, you know, simple economics says the prices are going to go up. And sure enough, at least... You know, I noticed, I think anyway, that prices for a good closer, if you wanted a good closer in the American League, you had to pay. Uh, of course, that means that the the guys at the very end, the, the, the speculative guys are dirt cheap, which helps certain people that like to play that game anyway. But, uh, you know, in the National League, you can get a, a full-time closer for 8 or $9, which is probably less than the true value that we discussed is going to say, but whatever, whatever your system. But... True value is one thing, you know, supply and demand and economics are another. It seems like the correct response to that information is, again, very league dependent. Are there, Do you know that there are guys in your league who are going to insist on getting a, a known quantity closer, especially in an American League league, as you said, where there are f- they're few and far between and therefore their prices should rise? And does that, in that kind of situation, does that offer a real buying opportunity maybe for you to get two or three of the lesser guys or the speculative guys for a buck or two apiece and if you're lucky you cash in a ticket you could really uh, dominate the category for almost free i i'm not i don't play the american league so I, i'm trying to think if there's anybody i can name off the top of my head i mean i know there are you know guys in the industry that i know are going to buy a closer 
I'm actually probably one of them. But uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head if there's anybody in the AL. I would know the people in my leagues uh, when I do NL tout and, and whatnot. Uh, but the point being, if I was an AL tout, I would probably reckon I'm not going to pay what it takes to get Holland or whatever. I would probably go the other route, just as you mentioned, and focus on the on the Tyler Clippers and and try to get a, a few saves. And because it is a trading league, when things flesh out, either trade into more saves if they're necessary, or you know what, maybe Tyler Clippard keeps the job the whole year. You know, I, we don't know who's going to get the chances in Houston yet. So I, you know, I may have been able to get Clippard and maybe Gregerson, and you know, who you know, whatever, maybe Brett Cecil or something like that, because people, you know, are they going to trade for Papelbon? And you know, throw three darts, and if, like you said, if one of them hits, or even half hits, that's less trading you need to do in season or or pick up pick up in season so i'm, I'm gonna guess that's what i would have done in the american league is is waited and gotten some decent setup men whereas in the national league i don't know that i would have paid full boat for a keg crimble or an aroldis chapman uh, in a mixed league i think it is important that you get one of the better closers because they do impact ratios pretty significantly but in the NL only league, I think I would have been just as happy with a Steve Sashek or Drew Storen or, or someone of that nature. I don't think I would have waited for Latroy Hawkins. But what I would have tried, I would have let the big guys go off the board and then try to wait till it settled into the middle teens to get a pretty darn good closer who could end up the best because you just don't know. But I don't think it was necessary to pay uh, for Chapman or, or one of those guys in the NL. And, you know, it's not even just looking for setup guys in the American League. There there are going to be guys who go into the season as closers, uh, and people are going to shy away from them because they're not established enough. And so you could actually get a, an established closer for half the price of a, of a truly established guy and and cash your ticket anyway. Right. I mean, a, Koji Iwihara, I mean, I think two years ago we were surprised that you know his arm didn't fall off. Now the Red Sox do their due diligence, and they did sign him to a two-year deal. So you know, put the numbers aside. You have to sort of say to yourself, would they have done that if the medical said not to? But man, the year they won the World Series to me it was like a rental car. We just you don't care about it. You know, you just beat it because you know you're going to be turning it in in a couple of weeks. I kind of thought that's what they did with Koji that season. Uh, you know, and then there's you know exactly Baltimore Zach Britton. He's got the job. But, you know, A, he's left-handed and, 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 you know, is he gonna, does he have the track record that he's gonna hold it? So you, you could possibly get one of these guys at a little bit of a discount and not have to go all in on Greg Holland or go all in on, uh, Dylan Batantes and assuming he gets the job. There's just not a whole lot of, you know, stability. You know, even Glenn Perkins has got the arm injury. So there's just not a whole lot of, you know, lockdown. He's gonna be the closer types. In the American League. Todd, the web has been abuzz these last few weeks and months with the idea, it's becoming kind of a trope, that pitching is becoming more trusted, more reliable, and therefore owners are more willing to invest in starting pitchers or take them, especially in straight drafts, in earlier rounds than we've ever seen before. And I'm wondering, did you see any of that in the uh, Labor American League National League auctions? Um, I think... There were a couple of other factors that trumped that. I see that more in drafts. I don't, haven't seen enough auctions yet. I've seen mixed auctions and in mixed auctions, the prices 
are definitely going up into the 30s for your Scherzers and your Strasburgs and your King Felixes. I was paying particular attention to this in labor just because I'll be doing the NFBC auctions in a couple of weeks. And the AL right now, I think we're still sort of in flux. We're not sure what to do because Hugh Darvish is now out and Stroman is now out. And we're not sure what to do with Tanaka. So I think some of this is trumping the whole reliability situation. I think we're trying to figure out how to, you know, do you want to pay for Felix or do you want to try to do the old Lima route at the end, even in a five by five, going for skills and building up your staff that way. And I think in the National League, you know, my, my partner in crime, speaking of Masters Ball, Lar Michaels kind of threw the league for a loop. And, uh, you know, I was privy to this. I knew he was going to do. And if you've been reading his pieces, you, you could have figured it out as well. He, uh, he pulled the old John Hunt from several years ago and he put Clayton Kershaw out there for $40 and he got crickets. And I think that kind of, it kind of made people reevaluate what it's going to cost for pitching and, and what they need to do to get their aces. And it ended up that none of the other pitchers really scaled up to, to Kershaw's $40. Actually, Kershaw's $40 is probably at, you know, true value. So I don't think there was, it was if that Lar, uh, threw out an, 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 an overpaid for him even. Could he, the question is, could he have gotten it for cheaper? And that's an interesting debate unto itself. But, uh, to me, the prices in the National League pitching may be similar to closers in that they're so deep. They went a little bit less than I expected, uh, as far as, you know, Zach Greinke at, I think, 21. I'll start my NL only staff with a $20 Zach Greinke every year that I can. Boy, I'll tell you what, I think I'd be very tempted to start my rotation with $21 Zach Greinke and 19 extra dollars to spend over a uh, paying $40 for Kershaw. As good as he is, that's $19 that you could apply very fruitfully somewhere else. Right. Now, I mean, I, Lar, Lar treats these leagues as much experimental as he does, you know, trying to win because, you know, I think that, I think we owe it to the industry to do that. So I don't think we need to be silly, but I think we do owe it to the industry to, to try some things that, you know, that are plausible and somewhat logical. And, and, you know, his whole premise was, uh, that, that, you know, Kershaw, does he match what Pedro did a few years ago? And as again, we'll see on the first pitch to form tour, uh, Pedro was actually much better than Kershaw on a, on a yet relative basis. Not much better was, was better than Pedro, uh, Kershaw. Uh, so, you know, could he have thrown them out for 30 or 31? The old thing goes, you know, as people are bidding it up by a dollar, maybe in their head, you know what, I'm going to go to 43. But by putting them out at 40, it didn't give people enough time to actually think about what they wanted to do. And they just, he just froze them out. So he put them at, I think, the perfect price because 40 has that, you know, the zero. It's, it's kind of the next level. It's not 38. It's, it's in, uh, and it's still, I think most of our valuation systems are going to put Kershaw right around the 40 mark. So I thought that was kind of an interesting ploy. Now, what he did afterwards, you know, we can debate, but then you can do, you know, a 12 team NL only. You can debate that on every team, but it's, it's going to be an interesting season. Yeah, the, the the thing that you said there that caught my ear was this idea of 
uh, an auction tactic of bringing out a guy at a very high price, especially if you're in an auction situation like I don't know how they do it uh, in the labor auctions, who the auctioneer is and what their timing rules are. But I can tell you that at Tout Mixed, where Jeff Erickson is the auctioneer, Jeff Erickson from rotowire.com is the auctioneer, and it's a very fast pace. As soon as the name is said or a bid is announced, he immediately says going once, going twice. You don't have a lot of time to think, and therefore starting a guy out at a at a high price forces those uh, other bidders to immediately make some very rapid calculations and they may only have four or five seconds in which to do it and the thought that has to be crossing everybody's mind is if I bid 41 I might be destroying my auction and that's a really smart play on the part of Laura Michaels to put everybody into that position and say all right I'm confident I can get $40 in value out of uh, Clayton Kershaw how confident are you that I'm wrong and that it should be 41 and furthermore, he knew what he was going to do this. So he had already sketched out a roadmap with Kershaw on his roster. So he, you know, he had that advantage as well. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, am I going to pay 41? And you say, yes, you know, maybe you're not ready to react the rest of your run. You know, what am I going to do for pitching? How am I going to backfill it? To me, it's the same. And, and, and I get chided for doing this, but I think it's a similar ploy that works is, you know, if, uh, we, we call it jump it. If it's, you know, 12 or 13, I won't say 14. I'll jump it right to 17, 18, or often 19 because there's this whole thing on the nines not wanting to go to next level. And so I'll jump it up to 19, and I'll get crickets, and someone will say, geez, you probably could have gotten them at 16. And I'll say, you know, I'm not so sure. I think that right. if we had gone through the, you know, single upping by $1 process, someone out there may have decided, you know what, I'm going to pay 20, but by jumping it, you know what? I, uh, so I, you know, three more dollars, four more dollars. I got the guy and I have him at 23. So I'm not only that, I got the guy, you know, under my price. So it's not exactly a jump bid. It's, you know, it's a, a freeze out bid is what Lar did. And this is called a jump bid. But I think in the mind, they, they do the same thing. I think there's a, a lot of interesting learning that we can do in the part of behavioral economics as far as how people respond to auctions and what the optimal strategies and tactics are within auctions. I've done some reading about it, and it's uh, it's a pretty interesting field with a lot of disagreement amongst the people who are uh, experts in it. But I, I think there's a lot of merit to this idea that uh, if you leave the auction to creep up a dollar at a time, that it's likelier to go over a threshold like 19 to 20 or 39 to 40 than it is if you just put it there right away and force people into that decision. Going 26, 27, 28, 29, especially if you have multiple bidders, it's not that big a jump to go from 29 to 30 as it would be to go basically from 26, if that was your last bid, to 30, because now you're being asked to put up four more dollars rather than one more dollar. Right. How many times, you know, you know, you know, $12 going twice and someone says 13, you are a fraction of a second away from getting the guy at 12. But once someone said 13, you hear 14 and someone else says 15 and this guy who hadn't even bid yet says 16. So it's, you know, it stops at 22. You know, you almost had the guy for 12, but because somebody said 13, it kind of gave people more time or, you know what, if he's going to go 13, you know, maybe I should go 14. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's such an interesting, you know, like I said, the mind games. Right. It's more than just baseball. It, there's, there's definite, you know, mind games and psychology to an auction that, you know, to me make it, you know, an interesting, you know, there's nothing wrong with a draft. I think there's nuances to a draft that are fantastic as well. But, you know, I think that we all, 
started out with auctions is why you know and and I know you do auctions online, but it's not the same either. There's nothing like getting in person, getting a good auctioneer, and having a really good auction. Yeah, I've played in leagues where it, it starts to become a lot like poker, where you're looking for tells or or for physical reactions of players. And I've played in leagues lots of times where you go the extra buck. You're in a you're in a face to face auction showdown with one other one other owner, and every time you bid him up, he starts you know kind of fidgeting and he's looking at his sheets again and all these kind of things, which makes you think that he's going to knuckle under pretty quickly. Whereas if you're dealing with somebody who who you say seventeen and he just says 18 without looking at anything without looking down without waiting for even going once he just he just boosts you it can put you in mind of a situation where i'm i'm faced with a very implacable opponent here and i really have to be careful not to not to overreact since we're telling funny stories about jason gray in auction stories this this actually happened it was the same league but a few years later when we were more established or whatever each of us is being uh shadow bid and that is, you know, if I bid a, on a player, someone might say, well, he must be good if Zola's bidding on him. And Jason and I would be, would be shadow bidded. So in order to, you know, sort of t- teach them a lesson, so to speak, uh, we prearranged to nominate our friend Rob Leibowitz, who was our partner in Masters Ball, who does not play professional baseball. But I put him out there for like a buck, and, and Jason seemed all sorts of mad. Ah, he was my guy, and he raised him to two, and... You're not going to get him on my watch, and I'll raise him to three. And sooner or later, we had half a league jumping in, and we got Rob up to like eleven or twelve bucks that year. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. We actually, we actually did that. A guy, a guy who's not even in baseball, and everybody's thinking, yeah, I, I've noticed that too. That in a lot of leagues, and probably uh, rightly so, that there are owners who are not as confident of their valuations, and if they see a bidding war breaking out between you know Larry Schechter and Ron Chandler, they all of a sudden think, well, if they if they know something, I, I'm in. You know, I don't even know what it is that they know, but I'm in, and and that can have a real uh, negative effect if you happen to be Larry Schechter or Ron Chandler in that situation. Right, and I'll do that when I'm in a league with them, and I'll do that specifically with Larry. Larry bids in a player, I say, oh, Larry bidding on him, I'm going seven. Just you know, just because we like to goof like that in these in these drafts, but no, it's it's true, and uh, and it's just what we you know people will see what we do on our mock drafts and our magazine drafts, and 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 you know monkey see monkey do. So we have you know it's then we you know someone like myself who then is going to be in Las Vegas in a couple of weeks and trying to win a high stakes league. You know, some people think I'm crazy for doing what I do and then putting real money down and trying to win leagues, and and maybe I am. But uh, I haven't missed any meals, so I guess we're still doing okay. Yeah, and uh, in so far as experts leagues are concerned, if you participate in enough of them and spread your picks around and don't do the same thing every time, even if you're even if you're dead certain that Mark Trumbo is going to be the key to every winning roster you have. You don't have to take them in every single experts draft that everybody can watch. You can try other other ideas. You can uh, you know take other strategic approaches. There's a million ways to approach it. Uh, Todd, before we close, I know there's one last set of first pitch forums that you're going to be participating in out on the West Coast uh, Saturday in Los Angeles and Sunday in San Francisco. Yep, like I alluded to before, I'm heading to the uh, airport in a few hours, and we'll be in beautiful Long Beach overnight in Los Angeles tomorrow morning, and. Uh, the programs are going really, really well. Uh, where there's some some really nice uh, slides and interactive uh, opportunities, and and there's walk-ups at the door. So if you don't happen to you know have pre-registered, 
don't no don't let that stop you. It's there's no weather to worry about like we've had to deal with on the East Coast and even in Chicago. You know, come on up. You know, say hello. You know, introduce yourself. More than happy to uh, to talk with you both at the breaks and afterwards. And you know, it's it's a guaranteed great three hours and three hours plus because we all hang out afterwards and you know happy to answer any lingering questions. If you need more details on where to get those first pitch forum uh, locations, go to baseballhq.com, a subscriber or not, you'll be able to see the first pitch forums uh, information on the r- right hand side in the navigational frame. You can click on it and get all the hotel uh, location information and so forth. Todd, thanks a million for talking with us. As always, we've uh, taken five minutes of material and stretched it to 40. Uh, we'll talk with you again uh, next week. Next week will be from Tut Wars. will be from New York. Very much looking forward to that. It's going to be really interesting. Okay, Todd, thanks. Okay. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, MastersBall, FantasyAlarm.com, and everywhere. And as I tell you every week, if Todd Zola's somewhere, you should be there too. When we come back, Master Notes with Ron Chandler. This is Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just training board at every pitch. Here it comes. A swing of it. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'm guaranteed that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no-hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentary. It's Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. With a look at the Tout Wars mixed draft, here's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist, Ray Murphy. This week, Tout Wars held their annual mixed league draft event. Baseball HQ had a couple of representatives in this draft. I picked from the number 8 spot in the 15-team snake, and my HQ co-general manager, Brent Hershey, sat in the number 2 spot. Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton, also participated. As a reminder, Tout Wars now uses on-base percentage instead of batting average in all of their leagues. Last year, I built my entire draft strategy around that change. Loading up on OBP studs in the first five rounds of that draft netted me Joey Votto, Shinsu Chu, Joe Maurer, and Carlos Beltran. You can imagine how that team turned out. Actually, it wasn't that bad. The injuries and underperformance from those top picks put me in an early hole, but a couple of trades and some helpful pickups got me back into the mix, and I made a big push late in the year to finish fourth. Brent was in a tight race up until the end, eventually finishing third behind winner Tim McLeod. Reflecting on my finish last year, I took it to be an example of bad outcome rather than bad process. Conceptually, loading up on OBP still seemed like a good approach entering this year. But as it turned out, this year the league seemed to value OBP differently, so I was forced to adjust on the fly. It was clear right in the first round that OBP was being highly valued. Typical BA League first rounders like Adam Jones, Anthony Rendon, and even Jose Altuve fell out of the first round altogether. They were replaced by OBP assets Robinson Cano, Jose Batista, and yes, Joey Votto, who went number 11 to Paul Sporer. 
I had a roadmap in my head where, from the number 8 spot, I wanted to target the top OBP guy at each position in the first couple of rounds. I had a good idea that Carlos Gomez would be my best option in the first round, and it turned out he was my pick. If he had been gone, I likely would have turned to either Edwin Encarnacion or Cano. In the second round, my pre-draft hope was to see Hanger Ramirez fall down to me, with Vado as plan B. As it turned out, Hanley came closer to my pick than Vado did, but neither had any real chance of getting at me. So, taking what the draft was giving me, I took a falling Jose Altuve at pick number 23. Two picks in, and I had two average-at-best OBP contributors on my roster. This was not the start I had planned. One element of my pre-draft plan did materialize in round three, pick number 38, where I took Carlos Santana, my first legitimate OBP stud. I had been weighing Santana versus Matt Kemp with that round three pick, and was pleasantly surprised to see Kemp fall all the way back to me with my fourth pick at number 53. In last year's draft, building that massive, projected at least, OBP cushion early allowed me to eschew on base percentage for counting stats later in the draft. I picked up guys like Billy Hamilton, Pedro Alvarez, and J.J. Hardy without any concern at all about the OBP drag that they brought to my lineup. This year, I ended up in the opposite position. Without any early OBP insulation, I kept one eye on OBP with each hitter picked right through the endgame. Pablo Sandoval was a decent OBP source at third base. Then I added Chris Carter in round seven, mostly to wash away the power deficit that came with taking Altuve so early. And Carter is less of a ratio drag in OBP leagues than he is in BA leagues. Johnny Peralta brought at least an average OBP at, this, at a shortstop position that is an OBP wasteland. I took Yadier Molina over Brian McCann as my top catcher due to those OBP considerations. Holding no grudges, I even brought Beltran back from last year's team, albeit 10 rounds later than a year ago. Jed Lowry made for a nice OBP-protecting middle infield option in the endgame. The lesson here, in terms of my own drafting mindset, is that I almost certainly paid more attention to my OBP throughout this draft than I would have paid to BA. Even in a batting average league, my preferred approach is to insulate batting average early and then spend some of that insulation later in the draft by targeting risky average hitters who offer power and or speed. But recently I've wondered if that approach is flawed, as a low BA from a pick in the end game hurts my team overall average just as much as a bad batting average from an early pick would hurt. If I'm taking the effort to build an advantage in the batting average category in the first place, why should I be willing to squander it in the endgame? So in this time, I protected my OBP all the way through the endgame. We'll see if it yields better results. One final note. Drafting against Brent and Rick was an interesting wrinkle. I had purposely selected the number 8 spot in the snake because I wanted to move away from Brent once he got the number 2 spot. In preparing for my first pick at number 8, I correctly predicted that Jose Abreu wouldn't be available to me because Rick would take him at number 6. And throughout the night, Brent and Rick each took a number of players that I was considering in similar spots. Brent got Gio Gonzalez, Russell Martin, and Travis Darneau, and Mike Moustakas right as they were near the top of my list. Rick beat me to Abreu, Chris Sale, Addison Reed, and Clay Buckholz. I found this funny because it's been a long-time irritant to us at Baseball HQ when a reader says to us, you're my secret weapon, I never tell my league mates that I use your service. That's a marketing nightmare. But on this night, at least, I got reminded of how irritating it can be when your league mates are working from the same source material that you are. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com's co-general manager and speculator columnist, and he's a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday the 13th of March. Thanks very much for taking the time to come out from under your bed, download and listen to show number 8 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It was Todd Zola, and as always, Todd was interesting and fun to talk to. And I want to thank our Master Notes commentator, Ron Chandler from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday when Baseball HQ founder Ron Chandler returns for a full-length feature interview talking about short-term fantasy formats, other fantasy baseball issues, and his sleepers and weepers for 2015. As well, Rob Gordon will be in with the Minor League Minute and a report on Boston pitching prospect Henry Owens. That's all on the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Dowd.